And so I say, okay, you know what? Let's do it your way. Let's paint it yellow with white trim. Now I can do that one of several ways. Okay, we'll do it your way. I can do it that way. Or I can say, go ahead. We'll do it your way. Or I can say, sure, why not? Or I can say, I'd love for it to be yellow and white. Because I know it would make you happy. I love making you happy. That's a source of joy to me to see you happy. Let's do it yellow and white. And so I don't have to have my own way. And I lay down my life for my wife. No timelines being drawn. And you, you know what's interesting to me? Let me go back for a second. Instead of going there. No timelines being drawn. You know what's interesting to me? I have so many guys come in the office and they'll say the wife has left them or something like that. And you know what? She's got six months. That's it. And I'm saying, you know, I wish you wouldn't have said that. Because you are not God. And you tell God six months and God's going to say, well, it's going to be at least seven because you need to learn to bend your knee to me. And so I say to the guy, I'm sorry you said six months because now it's going to be more than six months for sure. And so no timelines. And what's the opposite? Anger. Now, when I look at anger, there's a whole set of thinking comes to me. Because there's anger, blatant anger, obvious. Or there's controlled anger. And that's good. That's a good start. But it's still angry. Or there's no anger. And he who is of great understanding is not having a problem with anger, Scripture says. Now, he who is of great understanding is not having a problem with anger. And how often are we angry at our wife? What's it tell us? We don't understand her. We especially don't understand like Christ would. So I have a whole sermon I present on that. In fact, we have, we're going to have it available on DVD called Have You Discovered the Benefits of Anger? So I won't go into that now. And then we have kindness. And kindness is crestates. To be of service to others to lead them to God's grace. That's what that's looking at. And so this is the idea of being used by God, encouraging others by noticing and expressing their value. And when I'm talking about encouraging others, I need to start with my wife, learning how to encourage her to see things that she does for example, how many of us as men recognize that, especially when we're first married, that wives build menus around our taste, our preference? And so they go to the store and they say, um, you know, they might say to us, what do you like? And because we don't understand what the question is, we say, food. And that's no help to her. And she says, but do you like a particular item in, in, in particularly? I, I, you stick it on the table, I'll wolf it down. So what is she trying to do? She's trying to find out what we like. And so 
she'll go to the store initially, then they'll start finding out what you like. You know, you go to a restaurant, what kind of restaurant you like, what kind of food you like. They're watching like hawks, checking us out to understand who we are. Do we know this is going on? No, we don't have a clue. And so they watch all this stuff and they start realizing that we like a particular item. So we have to say to our wives as a means of encouraging them, you know, I, I realize that you go to the store and you shop for items that are particularly pleasing to me. You build a menu around my taste. That's phenomenal. I'm so grateful to God for giving me a wife like you. You're so sweet. You're so caring. You're so wonderful. I'm blessed among men. And she faints. Because <laughs> she's not used to that kind of talk. And so, do we know how to encourage her like that? Like, for example, if a wife comes out in a new hairdo, and we say to her, hey, that looks good, and she says, you didn't like the other ones, did you? Yeah. Do we understand what she's saying? No. See, if you understand, see, what we're trying to do in, in working with men to learn how to live with their wife in an understanding way is we want to teach women or men how to speak womanese. <laughs> because men do not speak womanese. So if you understand womanese, if a wife says to you, you didn't like the other ones, did you? See, we think they're trying to start a fight. Like, ten-foot pole, mm-mm. So do we understand that she's saying, and it makes perfectly logical sense. You said you like this one. You didn't say you like the other ones, so you must not like them, huh? See, we don't hear that. And, and so, or we're apt to say, yeah, I didn't like them other ones. Ooh, that hurts. So what she asked for, how about if God had her ask you to give you a test to see if you know how to speak womanese? And you don't know how to speak womanese. So instead of saying to her, nah, I don't like them. You say, hun, you look good all the time. I love this one too. Do we know how to speak like that? No. Because if we did, we'd get another, oops, there she fainted again. <laughs> or she comes out in a new dress. And we say, look sharp. You didn't like the other ones? Uh -huh. See, and so we, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what, that their heart is saying, I love pleasing you. Now, let me tell a secret on women, okay? Women will go to the store and they'll buy a new item of clothes and they hang it in the closet for several weeks. See, and then they break it out and they wear it and we say, is that new? And they say, no, I've had it for a while. Now, you know what's sad about that? We don't even know the difference. <laughs> oh, you have. We don't know. But why do they have to do that? Because they know that how easy it is to stir our wrath in a given scenario. And so they have to be careful around us. And so we're looking at the idea of, do we know how to be encouraging to others? Do we know how to make them feel encouraged? And our kids, I'm thinking, for example, of a, a, a bunch of kids come riding by our office one time, 
and they were, they were going to use the restroom in the office. And so the, several of them just threw their bikes down there. And this one kid drove up on a girl's bike. And he kind of leaned it up against there. And he went and he came back out. And I said, you know what? You must be quite a man. He said, why? I said, well, you know, I see all these other guys have boys' bikes. And you got a girl's bike. And you ride it anyhow. You must be some kind of man. Kid's eyes lit up like a Christmas tree. And I can still say Christmas. But at any rate, the idea is that it made him feel great. You know how much it cost me? Not a penny. Can I learn how to be encouraging to other people by noticing and expressing their value in God's economy and to me? Do I know how to do that? Reflexively seeing them as God sees them. It's a natural reflex to me. I just automatically see things in people that are praiseworthy. Because the job of a governor, and that's who we are as our house guys, the job of a governor is not only to punish them that do evil, but to praise them that do well. Do we know how to do that? And then the idea of what's the opposite of kindness? To me, pride. If I look at the idea of having to praise all these people, well, who's going to praise me? Or if I talk about their good qualities, that means I have to stop talking about my good qualities. And so pride can keep me from being kind to other people. And do I have pride in my life? I heard a guy say one time, pride is accepting undeserved praise or credit. Now, that was particularly easy for me because I was born as a twin. And when you're a twin, a couple of little, darling little twin boys, and blonde hair, you know, the whole bit, and, and people stop you on the street. Oh, are you a twin? Isn't that cute? Sure, yeah, it is. <laughs> but what did I have to do with being a twin? Nothing. And then as I grew older, I found that I had our artistic talents. And people say, wow, that's really fantastic. You want to see some more? What? Pride. Did, what did I have to do with being an artist? Nothing. God gave that talent. And so a way to pass that on is to say, for example, some, I've had somebody say to me, you know, you're, you're really sensitive. And I say, thank you. Instead of, no, nah, you're wrong. No, I'm not sensitive. And they may change their mind. You're right. I was wrong. <laughs> but if I can say to them, you know, that's very kind of you to say that, that really is encouraging to me. But you know what? I've got to pass it on. The patience of my wife is incredible. The patience of God is incredible. That's what's been the, the important factor in my life. And so I can pass on the credit to somebody else. And that way I don't have to accept it as my own. And the next one is goodness. And that's gentleness. Agathosune. God-likeness. And hopefully it's starting to look more and more like my purpose in this is being able to show that if I can take this opposite side and see that in my life, then I can see what to work on, what I need to work on. So I'm not just over here wondering, well, where am I over here on the fruit of the Spirit side? I can tell by where I am on my flesh side. And I don't know about you all, but I find most of the things that need work in my life, I find them on my flesh side. It's like my flesh is very operative. 
And I don't even have to ask it to be. It just automatically is. And so, like I say, Scripture says that it's my job to purge myself of the filthiness of my flesh and the filthiness of my spirit. So I have to even learn what my spirit is. And so, here I am. What's the explanation of those words? Comparing myself with Christ for His name's sake. So I want to always be comparing myself with Christ because there is a tendency in the Christian community or any community to compare ourselves with those we think are more successful than we are. And so we say, well, they do this and they're successful, so I'll do that. And we find we're not as successful as they are because they have a natural talent for that. And so they're successful, we try it and we're not successful. Then we feel like a failure because we weren't successful at what they are. But we're not who they are. We not, may not be in our life where they are. And so we have to learn how to accept who we are. And doesn't Paul say, comparing ourselves among ourselves, are we not foolish? Why? Because we're not supposed to compare ourselves to others. We're supposed to compare ourselves to Christ all the time. And so I have to learn to not compare myself with others, but to compare myself with Christ for his name's sake. If I'm bearing his reputation, you know, I've always said if they had a, a, a huge conference of all the great religions, I hope that nobody would show up for Christianity. Why should God, uh, Jesus have to take the rap because one of us shows up? So it would be better if nobody showed up. It's like uh, Gandhi said, love your Christ. Have a hard time with your Christians. Why? Because we haven't learned how to discipline ourselves enough to put our flesh to death. And it isn't as though when we put the flesh to death, it's once and for all gone. It's a zombie. Gets back up out of the grave. Comes back after us again. And it'll even let us experience some success for a little while. See, whenever we have guys come into our office, they have causes that they're involved in. And I think Satan is okay with Christians having causes. And there's lots of causes. But he'll let us experience success in causes. But if a guy says, I know that my first cause has to be me to illustrate Christ in my life, he starts experiencing trouble. Why? Because Satan knows this is the real area where he's going to be testimony in the, Christian, in the non-Christian community, in the world. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is his domain. And it's called darkness. And God is light. So if you become more godly, you're going to become light. You think Satan's going to stand by and let you become light in his territory? No. He's going to mess with you. And he's, he's got thousands of years of experience of messing with us humans. I don't care how old you are. The whole bunch of us here together don't have as much experience as he does. He's good at it. He's so good at it that he's called a deceiver. And he's not called a deceiver because he can't deceive. He's called a deceiver because he can deceive. And how long has he been deceiving us as husbands to believe you cannot understand the mind of a woman? Instead of saying, God says husbands live with your wife in an understanding way, like I did those years back, and I thought, you know what? I don't. I don't understand my wife. And I thought, you know, I have got to commit myself to understanding my wife. And start finding ways to set up snares for my flesh. 
so I can fight my flesh and learn how the, the Spirit of God already is in me, wants to occupy the territory. It's my flesh that's causing the problem. Do I know how to put my flesh to death? Not initially. But if I read the Word from cover to cover, I start seeing answers in there. This is how we know we love God. We obey His commands, and they are not grievous to us. But they are grievous to me, and I don't obey. So what are you trying to tell me, God, I don't love you? Because I do love you. But this is how you know you love me. You obey my commands, and they are not grievous to you. But I do love you, God. Are you obeying my commands? And are they not grievous to you? No, I'm not obeying you. So what are you trying to tell me, God? I don't love you? Yes. Because if you think you love me, you don't have a problem to work on. But if you know you don't love me, you will realize you have a problem to work on. And I need to show you. And that's why the Bible shows one of two things. Either where I'm not being like Christ or where I am. And he holds up the standards that he wants. And I read those. And I'm saying, good. You know, the first time I read James, I didn't like that book. Because it, it's like, I don't do anything in here. Right? And so I've got to work on changing that in my life. Because my job is to conform to the image of Christ. But I don't have to do it alone. See, when I first discovered more about the intensity, the volume of my flesh in my life, I remember where I was standing. And I remember thinking, you know what it felt like? It felt like I was standing next to this mountain of my flesh. And I mean, good grief, look at all that flesh. It's like God handed me a spoon and said, move the mountain. <laughs> Gotta do it. And I'm doing it because you told me to, God. And I just keep digging away. And one day I look there and there's this huge hole. Like, wow, how'd that happen? It's like God saying, I'll help you. I'm not going to leave you alone. But you have to show me you're sincere first. You show me you're committed. Because if you're committed to me, I'll honor that. So I keep digging away at my flesh, bit by bit, to get flesh out of my life. And I have not arrived. I don't know what arriving is, but I know where I'm headed. I'm committed to that idea of becoming more like Christ. And you know what? I can't even trust my own understanding of my life. And God knows that. So you know what he did? He gave me a helper. See, my eyes don't look this way. I can't examine myself this way. So he gave me a custom pair of eyes that look this way. Called Nancy. And she sees all the areas in my life that are not like Christ. And I can be grateful or resentful. It's my choice. And I've realized that when I'm resentful, I'm stupid. When I'm grateful, I'm smart. And you know what else I've learned? If I will learn how to lay down my life for my wife, like Christ did for the church, 
that I might, through the washing of the water word, present her holy. Now, I mentioned that in a seminar, and one guy said to me, you raised your hand, I said, yes. He said, you trying to tell me it's my job to present my wife holy? I said, no, sir, I didn't write that. If I'd have written it, it would have said something different than that. <laughs> but now, I found a way that, that is so beneficial to me. And it's this simple little formula. It's like, Christ-like husband, if a man will learn how to lay down his life for his wife, like Christ did for the church, that he might, through the washing water, word, present her holy. Christ-like husband, holy wife. Unholy wife, unchrist-like husband. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I didn't like that. It's a very beneficial formula. Because in anything I see over here that I don't think is Christ-like, what are you trying to show me about myself, God? If it's true, if you really mean that, if I will learn how to become like Christ, I will know how to present her holy. Now, let me give you an idea of what I'm talking about. One day I'm in the bathroom shaving, and Nancy comes into me, and she says to me, I've got something I want to talk to you about. Now, I know what that means. So I said to her, what is it? And she told me what it was. And I slipped up and responded right for a change. And I said to her, you know what, you're right. I can see where that's true. I can see how that would be offensive. And I accept responsibility for that. I need to not do that. Thanks for sharing that with me. Well, I inspired her. She had some more. <laughs> and so she shared several more with me. And I slipped up and responded right on each one. And so she left with everything she talked about resolved, because we'd resolved it. And she left, and about 15 minutes later she came back and she said, you know what, I think I love you more than you love me. Now, I said to her, really, why? Like, listen to this. Because I help you see where you need to improve your walk to be more the person that God wants you to be, so you enjoy your relationship with God. You don't do that for me. Why did she say that? Because several years earlier, I gave up on the idea of telling her where she's a mess because it's such a distraction to me. I can focus on what I think she's a mess in. In fact, if I provoke her to anger and she gets angry, I can tell you how wrong she is for getting angry. Will I examine that I provoked her? Oh no, uh -uh. that won't occur to me in my flesh. And so what I've got to do is realize that I don't even know the difference between where she needs help and where she's just responding to me. So I decided that I would believe what God says and follow through with it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'll take care of everything else. Now, does God really mean that? There's only one way to find out. Purpose. I will become the person that God requires that I be, whether or not she does. And so here she is coming back saying to me, basically, give me some of that. You show me where I'm falling short. Well, I'd given that up for about a year and a half since I'd last started looking at where she needed to improve, or I thought she needed to improve. 
And she said, I know there's areas in my life where I have to improve. She said, are you telling me there's no areas in my life? I said, no, I can't think of any. Why? I got rid of them because I'm focusing on me like Scripture says to. For me, to focus on me. And she says, well, will you uh, give it some attention? Yeah, if you want me to. I want you to. Whereas before, it was always, how come every time I come to you with something you're doing wrong, you've got to get back on my case? That was the reasoning before. And now she's saying, you've been benefited by discovering where you're not the person God wants you to be. I want some of those benefits too. And you know what? When God says, if a man will lay down his life for his wife first, like Christ did for the church, that he might, through the washing of the word, present her holy, I believe he means it. It's almost as if you could trust God. And so what I'm looking at is, can I put the effort into changing me to become more like Christ, like God wants me to? To compare myself with Christ, for His name's sake. And then, being alert to discrepancies between me and Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but that's very hard for me to do. To be alert to discrepancies. So again, I need some help. And so, I have said to Nancy, I want you to feel free to come to me anytime with anything that's on your heart. Anytime with anything. And she might say, well, how about if my attitudes are stinky? That's fine. How about if I don't word it the way you think I should word it? That's okay. I want you to feel the freedom to come to me all the time, anytime, with anything. That's still true, honey. And so, what I'm looking at is this. If, we were at a seminar one time, and we were flying home Sunday, and uh, Nancy said to me, because I mentioned that at a seminar, she said, uh, can you think of anything you said in the seminar that you're not necessarily practicing right now? I said, yeah, I, I, I do remember. In fact, I said when I said that, I looked around the room to see if you're in there. And, and she said, that's true. See, because I'm looking at the idea that, let's say a husband comes home from work and he is exhausted and his wife has had a wretched day. And typically we say to a wife, you know, when your husband comes home, if you've had a bad day, you don't unload on him right away. You get his slippers, you let him sit down, you let him relax, you let his day kind of get, get escape him, and you wait, you don't go to him. And I'm saying, baloney. I want Nancy to come to me anytime with anything and know that she will be received as Christ with. For example, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest unless I've had a really packed day. No, he doesn't say that. There's no qualifications. Well, why is it that I've had this horrible day and she has to come with me with that? Because God wants me to build me to be stronger. To be even more capable of caring for her or the family. Because I'm here to tell you, when your kids get older and they're out of the house, you're not done. And when you have grandchildren, you're not done. 
So you compound your relationship with your wife by 10, 20, whatever. Can you take care of 20 people at once? Can you listen to situations with all of them and zero right in on the needs and go there and have them all feel ministered to? You can if you let God bring, even when you're at your wit's end, and He brings you more. Because He says, I will not test you above that you're able. Have confidence in me, please. I won't test you above that you're able. And so if I know that that's true, I know He's not going to bring more to me than I can handle. That doesn't mean I'm going to like it necessarily, but He won't bring more to me than I can handle. Am I willing to let Him do that and trust Him, let Him be the author of the events of my life, and then I'm going to be alert to the discrepancies. Do I fall short? When she comes to me with her burdens and I've had a heavy day, then I'm not matching up to Christ. Because he had no qualifications about being able to come to him. So, what's the opposite of that? Insensitivity. Now, this is me. I'm Mr. Insensitive. See, when I grew up in an orphanage, I didn't have any family reference at all. I didn't have any awareness of what relationships consist of. I didn't know what sensitivity was. I didn't know what caring for somebody else was. Because you care for yourself in an orphanage or you don't get much care. And so that's what I learned. And so I'm looking at the idea that if God can get to me, He can get to anybody. I'm thinking. And so what do I look at next? The idea of faithfulness. This is pistis. Belief. Being familiar with trust. Trustingness. And so this is something, again, that God wants to build in my life. And how do I measure that? Learning to trust so it shows. If something comes up, can I even discover God's intention in every event? And in seeing his intention in every event, can I help those I'm supposed to care for see that they can trust God too? It's like when my daughter's house burnt to the ground uh, December the 4th. And she's got two little boys and everything was burnt up. I mean everything. There's nothing left. Christmas presents, tree, nothing left. And she was out of town when it happened. And it was, a, it was a comedy of events. The local volunteer fire department shows up. And at this point, just the kennel, which is attached to the garage, and the garage are on fire. But the volunteer fire department decides they're going to punch a hole in the ceiling to let the smoke out. Well, it turned it into a chimney. And the fire just whoop, increased. Four and a half hours later the house is burnt to the ground it's 11 degrees and so the, the hoses were all frozen and everything the, uh, the fire truck came out with half a tank of water had to go back and get water the brakes gave out on the fire truck when it's on its way back into town it does make it to the fire hydrant that last year was broken and has never been repaired they send two tankers out full of water but the fire truck's gone and so basically they watch it burn down. So it burned to the ground. So one of my grandsons, I said to him, what'd you lose in there? He said, everything, Grandpa. 
I said, yeah, that's what I understand. I said, why do you suppose God would let that happen? He said, I don't know, Grandpa. I said, I'll tell you the reason why I think it let it happen. Everything you have is gone, isn't it? He said, yeah, everything's gone. I said, is God giving you a new start to discover for yourself what is really important? Because now you know what will burn. You know that nothing will last. Is it giving you a chance to decide, to understand, in each endeavor, each thing you want to buy, how valuable is this? How lasting will this be? Is it worth it? And he kind of lit up and he said, I never thought of that. And so can we take each situation and know that God means good? All things happen for the good, except for, of course, a house burning down. That's not what he says. And so, learning to trust, so it shows. Trustworthy testimony. I'm thinking of another grandson who, as we were leaving church, he went to cross um, an alley and a car was coming along. And it's kind of hard for me to talk about, but I'll try it. And so, uh, this is several years back, he got hit by the car. And he's rolling underneath of the car. And, and I, when I see him, his head is about a foot away from the rear tire. And he and I get eye contact. And my heart is ready to explode. And he said, when he got eye contact with me, he knew everything was going to be okay. I didn't. I never in my life screamed out and pled with God louder with more intensity than I did that time. And the tire stopped four inches from his head because it rested on his arm. And he was saved. But I like the idea, yes, thank you, I like the idea that he trusted God because he trusted me. And so I have said to him, you know that God has a special call in your life? I want to be around to help you see what it is and see what it is and know how God wants to use you in life. And everything happens for the good. Do we know how to tell them that? Can they trust us? Maintaining the integrity of God's work in our lives. Maintaining the integrity. Not letting it slip. Not getting away from it. And what's the opposite of that to me? Hypocrisy. I'm afraid that the word we get called as Christians almost more than anything is hypocrite. And you know why? Because we are. Can we admit that to people and say to the non-Christian world, yeah, I do fall short of the glory of God. I'm a mess. That's why I need a Savior. I sure am glad I got one. And so, I look at the next one as meekness, praus, willing and able to be guided and used by God. And that means recognizing the frailty of a person's spirit. See, as I learned to understand my spirit, and I learned to understand my wife's spirit, I realized how frail the human spirit is. It's incredibly durable, but it's frail. It can be hurt easily. And can I understand it to the degree that I don't want to do anything ever to hurt somebody's spirit? 
I don't want to. I don't like it when it happens to me. I don't like it if I do it to somebody else. And cautious with attitudes conveyed. Do I even know the attitudes I convey? And it's like I told a story about how um, I decided we're going to have a family meeting one day. I've got three daughters and my wife. That's four against one. It's not even even odds yet. So I decided we're going to have a family meeting. I want everybody in the kitchen because I've had it up to here with the way this family is not a godly family because we're going to be a godly family. This is my godly look. And so everybody gets in the kitchen and we have our family meeting. And I always win. And they always agree that I'm right. So we finish the meeting and I look over at Nancy and she's sitting there going, I'm like, what? And she didn't say nothing. She said, I wish you could hear and see what we hear and see. I'm like, what? And she says, you're so mean. You're so harsh. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And she says, and so we talk about it. What And so she sets his little black box in the middle of the table and she pushes two buttons. <clears throat> well, now here's what we want to talk about, kids. <laughs> Incredible accountability. And we conduct this incredibly wonderful meeting, and I'm thinking, after it's all over, this thing is so good, we could probably enter this in the National Archives for proper parenting. (laughs) Until I listen to it a couple of days later, when I'm emotionally detached. And I listen to this, and I'm like, oh man, and this was my best behavior. (laughs) And, but you know what? For the first time, I promise you, for the first time, I heard the attitudes they heard. I'd never heard them before. I didn't have ears that heard me. I only had ears that heard them. But now I heard me. And for the first time, I was convicted about what they felt. How I affected them. I discovered attitudes I did not know before. I never heard them before. But you know what? I will hear them. I insist that God help me see attitudes in my heart that are not like Christ. And so, I'm looking at the idea of what's off of that? Demanding. And maybe you're like me. I demanded my kids were better than I expected of myself. I expected they make no mistakes. But I could make all kinds of mistakes. Like, I'm not going to let them watch bad stuff on TV. And they say to me, Dad, you're watching boxing. Get out of here, I'm busy. And am I hearing them say, no. Am I recognizing the attitude of being critical to them, but I'm not critical of myself? No, I don't recognize that. 
And so I have to learn to recognize that. Because I'm demanding that they not watch anything bad on TV, but I do. So that's not a good example. Self-control. Incritia. Inner strength. The opposite of inner weakness. And how do I see that? The power of God active in us. Ego is dying. Now, I would like to ask you a question. I want to propose something, and I need to get an answer from you ladies, because there's a philosophy in the Christian community that I think is, is so unscriptural and so ungodly, but I think it's very prominent in the Christian community. So let me propose this and see if any of you women have heard this. Have you ever heard this philosophy? Ladies, always be careful to never damage your husband's ego. Always be very careful to be uplifting because a man's ego is very delicate and you don't want to damage it. So always be supportive of his ego. Any of you women ever heard that? Ah, I'm so sorry you heard that's such junk. Why do I say that's an ungodly, unscriptural philosophy? I go into Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. Unless I live, uh, not I, Christ lives in me. Why do I say that is a scripture that proves that the philosophy is always being supportive of, careful never to damage your husband's ego. Why do I say that that verse invalidates that philosophy? Because I have been crucified with Christ. You know what the word I is in Greek? E-G-O. Ego. It's like somebody on a Saturday at the seminar, we have sometimes a little question and answer period, and the lady raises her hands up and she says, what do you do when people accuse this ministry of being a husband bashing ministry? I said, husband bashing? Husband bashing? I thought it was supposed to be a husband crucifying. And so I'm looking at the idea of, of me being crucified that Christ might live in me instead. And so the ego is dying every day. I'm discovering more about, ways about my ego, able to recognize even what my ego is. How does it manifest itself? When does it manifest? Why does it manifest itself? Under what circumstances? How does it show up in a subtle way since it's supposed to be deceptive? and desperately wicked. How do I see those subtle ways it shows up? And so what's the opposite of that? Egotism. Now if I could give you an item of homework, it would be this, this. Go home. Look up in your dictionary. Look up the word ego in all of its forms and ask yourself, is there anything in the word of ego, egotism, egomaniac, etc., that, that sounds at all like Christ? And if there's not, then ego has got to die. Do we know how? And so again, what I tried to de develop this for was to help me see how can I weigh where I am in my spiritual maturity? How much of my flesh is showing up still? What areas? And there's more areas than this. But just for this purpose to say, okay, 
God, I want to be more spiritually mature. I want to be a, a mature, I want to have fruit of the Spirit. What's keeping me from doing that? This kind of stuff. And so can I learn how to overcome my flesh? Can I? See, so many times we say, well, I'm taking my sinful nature and I'm laying it to put the cross. And I'll let God take care of it. And i got a hunch God saying, no, 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 I don't want it. I've already had victory. Where do you think these trials come from? I brought them in your life. Why do you welcome them as friends? Knowing that I brought them there to produce in you endurance. The capacity to endure. Endure in what? Christ-likeness. Because that's what God wants for every one of us. Could I close in prayer? God, you've got to be a God of love and patience when you look down at us. And you see what you see, and your heart's breaking, along with being joyful about us too. But your heart is breaking at what you see, and you still care for us. You know our hearts better than we do. You're setting up means of our being able to discover more about our heart so that we can become the person you want us to be, like Jesus. So that the world can see us and say, Good grief, I want what you've got. I want a marriage like you have. How did you get that? God, help us to have that heart that says, No matter what, nothing will stop me from becoming like your son Jesus. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for being able to talk to you. Now.